This is the church. This is the steeple. Open it up. And there are the people. Perhaps you're familiar with that uh, doctrine. (laughs) As I began to think about that over the years, I began to realize, wait a minute. We're calling the church the mere building. Ah, so let's try to rework this. So I came up with my own saying. Here's the building. Here is the perch. Open it up, and there is the church. No. Gathered. There is the church. Gathered. Hopefully, as we make our way through this sermon, that will make better sense. But as I find myself wrestling with what the Bible says about the church, I begin to realize uh, there are just some misconceptions I think that we have about the church. And in thinking about some of these misconceptions, I was reminded of three, really, that we easily kind of fall off into. One is just thinking the church is merely a building. The warning against that and the caution with that is that if we believe that the church is merely the building, then we'll begin to prioritize the building over the relationships that exist within it. Another ditch is to think that uh, the church is an event. And so we'll say things like, uh, how was church today? How was uh, kind of this idea that uh, I walked away and I did church? And the warning with that is that if we see church is merely an event, then it's easy to come and to sort of critique based on your experience. In fact, if I could say it, if we see church as an event, you're more concerned about my performance or the performance of others who lead us than yours. It would be a caution against seeing the church as merely an event. I think another ditch is to think of church and to see church as just the leaders, kind of the leaders. And so we say, yeah, like we, our church has decided to do X. And sometimes we begin to just sort of kind of dump off and push off our responsibility as individual members of this body and just sort of resign and designate that over to leaders. And so if you find yourself in any of those ditches this morning, I pray that our time together, literally running through all of God's word, Uh, will be an encouragement, will also be a correction. And so I'd like to ask you, how do you understand the church? How do you define church? That has always been an important question, but perhaps given the last two years, it's becoming an ever-increasingly important question. In the wake of a global pandemic, this question now has heightened importance. So if I could go back to the saying, the local church is not less than a people, but it's more than a people. At minimum, we could say that the local church is a people who gather together in a place for a specific purpose. 
a people who gather together in a place for a specific purpose. And so I just want to ask at the outset, why are you here this morning? Why do most of you gather week in and week out with this same local church in this same place for the same purposes? And why do, you, and why do some of you not gather regularly? Children, this would be a good question to ask your parents today over lunch. Why do we gather every week? Why do Sundays look like this? And students, children, if you listen to the sermon, you will be able to tell whether or not your parents listened today. <laughs> Perhaps you're visiting or you're not a Christian. You've been invited by a friend and we want to say thank you for being here. And we pray that you would feel welcomed here. And we hope that you're able to see that the gathering of God's people is not merely an accessory option to the Christian life. It really, by definition, gathering makes us. It's in part what makes us the church. I'm helped by what my fellow pastor Justin Harris once said. He said, your perception of the church will affect your passion for the church, which will affect your practice as the church. So one more time, your perception of the church will affect your passion for the church, which will affect your practice as the church. And so the aim of this four-week sermon series that we began this morning is to help us better understand the importance of life together as the church. And one of the illustrations that we're using, the images that we're using to highlight what it is that we're trying to do is that of a ring. And if you notice anything about a ring, everybody looks at the ring and they are taken aback by the diamond, the stone that's set there in the ring. And yet there are usually one or two, I, I did more research this week on diamonds and prongs and than I, I should have. Uh, but usually there are either kind of the double or the triangle or the four kind of prongs that showcase and secure and set the diamond. And I think what we want to say over the next few weeks is that in, in the ways in which simple prongs bring attention or showcase, display the magnificence of the diamond, so too, we as a local church, when we are healthy, we showcase and bring attention to and display the majesty of Christ. If you've been around Covenant Life for a while, you have heard us talk often about being a healthy church. And I just want to be clear, the reason we talk about being a healthy church is not so that we can have polished prongs and everyone marvels at the prongs. The reason we talk about being a healthy church is because we believe that a healthy church must like, much like, Good, solid prongs showcase and bring glory and magnify and grab the attention of the diamond. And that's Christ. And so we want to be a healthy church because we want to rightly uphold 
the glories and the wonder of Christ. Prongs aren't merely prongs for prongs' sake. I mean, you take the diamond or the stone out of the prong, and sure, you may can use it as uh, a back scratcher, I don't know, something. I'm sure there's a purpose that if I would have read even more, I, I probably could have found purposes for prongs. But when prongs provide a secure setting for the brilliance of the diamond to be displayed, that's when the prongs are at their best. And so too the church in relation to Jesus. And when I say that, I want to be clear. Jesus isn't needy. Jesus isn't needy, and he's not sitting around going, man, I wish I had churches that would just rightly showcase, because if if churches don't do that, then my glory will not be showcased. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. He's not in need of the church, but in mercy and grace, he has so chosen to use weak and unimpressive prongs to showcase the glories of his character and of his work. And there are many ways in which a church has the opportunity to display the glories of Christ. Over the next four weeks, we're going to consider four of those opportunities. Gathering together, baptizing, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and covenanting together. And our prayer has been, and my prayer this morning is that there would be renewed purpose and passion that are infused into these seemingly mundane, regular, ordinary rhythms of life. And it would just remind us that whenever we do what God's word calls us to do, you and I are doing the most fulfilling and mind-blowing thing possible with, your and with, with our earthly human lives. We are showcasing the glories of Christ. There's nothing greater that we can do. And so we begin this morning talking about gathering. And we begin this morning needing to pray. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of the little that I have. I'm reminded of the breadth of this topic. I'm also reminded that for reasons that I trust you have appointed, our aim is to cover the breadth of that this morning. And so grant us a lot of grace. I beg that the sermon that is heard would be far more effective than the one that is preached. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Most Sundays, our sermons, we have a clear aim. And the clear aim is to take the point of a passage that we're in and make that the point of the sermon. Our aim this morning is a little bit different. This is where hopefully yellow flags are going up for you. Uh, The aim this morning is to develop a biblical theology of gathering. One pastor noted that biblical theology is a discipline that helps us trace both the unity and diversity of a topic within the storyline of Scripture. And so what we hope to do this morning is to just say, okay, what does the Bible overall teach about this topic of God's people gathering together? And hopefully the evidence will overwhelm us to where we will begin to see, yeah, at no other time in history has this ever been an option for God's people. It's always been essential and a necessity. And so to walk through this, we're going to consider four scopes that I pray or will help us better understand and believe and live out God's purpose for being the church who gathers together. But before we consider this, those four scopes, I think it would serve us well to just consider what it is that the word means. 
And though we don't put all of our eggs in that basket, we do realize believing 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired by God. All of it is. We believe in what would be called verbal, every word, plenary, having authority, inspiration. God has guided the process, which means that the words that are contained in the Bible were specific words that God intended to be in the Bible. And so just even understanding what words mean, I think, are helpful. The word that's used throughout the, Old, uh, the New Testament for church is ecclesia. And the word literally means assembly. And what we find is that there are two assemblies that are envisioned throughout the New Testament. And that's this heavenly assembly and then these earthly assemblies. One heavenly assembly, many earthly assemblies. And the aim of the earthly assemblies, uh, it's simply to reflect the realities of the heavenly assembly. And again, here it's, it's where we begin to just think words do matter. God could have chosen to use the word aklos for crowd, demos for people, and yet he uses ecclesia. It's not merely the church is a people. It's not merely that the church is a crowd. It's not merely... No, what we see is that it's an assembling of a people. Those in the New Testament era, when they heard ecclesia, they would have thought of a duly convened assembly. In fact, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which we would call the Septuagint, overwhelmingly uses the word ecclesia, assembly, to refer to God's people and the assembling of God's people. And so if I could just say it plainly, the Bible makes clear that, there, that the church is an actual gathering of believers. It's the activity of gathering in a place for a specific purpose that makes us a church. And so catch what I just said. It's the activity of gathering in a place for a purpose that makes us a church. I think about what the Bucks players right now are doing. Uh, many of them, I'm assuming, will be watching the Super Bowl. Um, but if you were to see one of the Bucks players, you would say, even at any point throughout this offseason, you wouldn't say, hey... Um, the fact that you're not wearing the jersey or the fact that you're not uh, gathering right now together with the team, you're no longer on the team. No, I, I think if you were to talk to any Bucks players currently, they would tell you, yeah, they're still part of the team. And they're a part of the team even as they scatter. But the reason that they're a part of the team as they scatter is for the activity that they do whenever they gather. And so that gathering there then gives them, the, the gathering gives shape to their identity. So too with the church. We are indeed the church as we scatter, but what makes us a church is not what we're doing while we're scattering, it's what we do when we come together as we gather. I'm helped by what Matt Smether says. He says, the gathering of the people gives definition to the people of the gathering. The gathering of the people gives definition to the people of the gathering. And so, 
having just thought about a little bit about what this word means and the prevalence that we see in both the Old and the New Testament, I want to just jump in to think first scope that we'll look at is the pattern of gathering. The pattern of gathering. And literally, from front to back, the Bible overwhelmingly conveys that God's people gathered together. And so I think it's just wise for us to find ourselves being willing to fall into step to what the overwhelming majority of all of human history has shown. Beginning in Genesis 1, God created and dwelt with his creation. There was this purpose that God would, out of the overflow of love and sufficiency that was there in the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, out of overflow, he creates. And he creates so as to dwell with his creation. And what do we see in Genesis chapter 3? We read at the end of Genesis 1 that everything is very good, and yet Genesis chapter 3, sin banishes man from God's presence. The thing in which they were created for, to dwell with God and with one another, sin has distorted that, and it pushes them out from the presence of God. But in great mercy and grace, God makes a promise in Genesis 3.16. And he says, there's coming a day where I will defeat the one who has brought about this enmity, who has brought about this destruction. How in the world would God go about this plan of bringing man back to himself? Well, in Genesis 15, what do we find? We find God promising Abram to dwell, uh, calling Abram to go and to dwell in a land. And and the unique thing about this land is what? That God would dwell with him there. And so again, just the, oh, we see, we remember Genesis 1 in this call to Abram. But he doesn't just merely promise to to bring Abraham to this place where where he's going to dwell. No, God promises in Genesis 28.3 to make Abraham a company of people. And then in Genesis 35, 11, this is what we read. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and the kings and kings shall come forth from you. And so there's this promise to not only bring this people into a place where God could dwell with them, but that there was, he was also going to make them a, even a larger people, nations even. As Abraham's family grows, God raises up Moses to lead lead God's people to the land that he promises. This land in which what? In which they would be able to serve and worship him, and he would dwell with them. Again, what is it? It's this reminder of Genesis 1. And what do we find? We find all along the way, as Moses is leading God's people in Deuteronomy... We just find over and over this precedent. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. What do we hear? The Lord, getting ready to write the law, says, The Lord gave me two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly. And so literally, we go back and we see from the very beginning, there's this purpose that there would be a people that are gathered together, and they're gathered together for a specific purpose, to worship their God. And what's interesting is that the tablets didn't just get passed around. 
No, God's people would be assembled together. They would be gathered together and, and God's word and, uh, would be spoken and would be preached. And we will find and kind of see over and over, it would be read to God's people. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Uh, excuse me, verse 4. He wrote on the tablets like the former, the Ten Commandments. On the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them. But there wasn't just this regular kind of coming together. There were also special occurrences. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 10 through 12. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of the remission of debts and the feast of the booze, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read his law in front of all Israel in their hearing. And so what? Assemble the people. Bring them together. Why? So they can hear the word and the law of the Lord read. And so what do we find? We find God's people wandering through the wilderness, seeking to find their way to the promised land. And what do we find? They're regularly coming together, gathering to worship. Moses would die. Joshua would, would then take the man to lead them into the land where God would dwell with his people. And it's in this promised land that, that a, more, a more permanent temple was built. All the while, as they're wandering, their kind of tabernacle, the tent, God's presence dwelling there with his people. And in this land, a more permanent temple was built. And God's people would gather here to hear from the word of the Lord. We see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 at the dedication of the temple. It's assemble the people together. Gather them together. And as we've walked through the Psalms, what we have found is just what's happening. God's people are coming together and they're singing. They're rehearsing truths. Psalm 149 verse 1, just a, a picture of what's happening in, in most of these Psalms. These Psalms are... are, are uh, opportunities and our songs that are meant to be sung as the people come together, they gather in the temple to worship God with the covenant community. Just this pattern over and over, fast forward, the temple then was going to be destroyed. It's going to then be rebuilt by Ezra, who would gather the people together to hear from the word, uh, word of the Lord, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. And then as the wall is being rebuilt by Nehemiah, Nehemiah gathers people together, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And what's it say? And all the people gathered as one man. And so even after this exile away, thinking, wait a minute, what's unique about God dwelling with us and us getting, uh, being together, gathering that seems to be lost. And no, 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 the temple is rebuilt. And so there's this coming back together. And when they come back together, what do they do? They gather to hear from the word of the Lord. Well, if you know biblical history, you know that God would again disband his people into exile because of the judgment that would come about them for their sin. But it's in the midst of this, Joel chapter 2 in the midst of talking about the reproach that is coming, that God promises deliverance. And it's in this promising of deliverance, maybe there's a glimmer of hope. It says in 2.28, it will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And it's going to affect sons and daughters and old men and young men, every male, female. You're beginning to go, ah, there's a hope 
There's a hope for this people who seem to have just been pushed away and forgotten. There's a hope that God will still dwell with his people. And then it goes silent for several hundred years until we find at the birth of Jesus the Christ God coming to tabernacle among us. You begin to go, oh, wait. He's not forgotten his promise. He comes and he dwells with. And not much else is spoken about this ecclesia until we get to Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus is asked, or when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, some say this and some say this. And Peter says, but who do you, or Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you didn't learn that in school. Like you weren't taught that by man. The Spirit has revealed that to you. And Jesus says, it's upon this confession that I will build my ecclesia. That I will build the gathering of my people and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then Jesus proceeds in Matthew 16 to give the apostles what he says are these keys to sort of represent authority on his behalf, on heaven's behalf. And this is where you're beginning to think, okay, I think the Catholic Church understands that Peter took those keys and Peter had them and Peter handed them to uh, the Pope and the Pope said, and those keys have just been handed down. But two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18, we don't see Peter exercising those keys. We see the church exercising those keys. And the church has come together to make a decision about what they're going to do for a professing Christian who is in unrepentant sin. And after walking through measures of reconciliation, you get to the end of, of uh, in verses 15 through about 20. Matthew chapter 18. What do we find? We find Jesus saying, and if he's, if, if there's unrepentance still, then tell it to the church and have the church remove them. Treat them like a tax collector. Treat them as if they're not a part of God's people. And then he mentions right after that, because whatever is bound up on, in heaven shall be bound up on earth, and whatever is loosed in heaven shall be loosed on earth. And it's again, it's that picture that these earthly assemblies are reflecting the heavenly assembly. Well, so when do we see this ecclesia kind of fully take shape? We see how the church is exercising those keys, Matthew 16 or Matthew 18. But then we hit Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2, as the, the preached word goes forth, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the preached word is that which is just recounting Christ and how Christ was this one who has come and, and died, endured, expired under the wrath of God. The temple was torn. And three days later, it was rebuilt again. And it's as that message goes out that people are pierced with conviction. And they say, we want, we desire that God. And so what do we see? Acts chapter 2, this ecclesia births. 
It's not an ethnic people, it's a spiritual people. And this spiritual people repent and believe. And then what we see in Acts chapter 2, what do they do? Look at verse 42, Acts chapter 2. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of, the, of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. They were gathering, and they had all things in common. They began to sell their possessions and property and were sharing with them all Uh, with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. What you find is that the pouring out of the Spirit, which was promised in Joel chapter 2, comes to fruition in Acts chapter 2. And what do we see? God dwelling with His people and His people gathering together. They were to be a display people. They were different from the world. It wasn't just that they had something else to do on, at the time, on the Sabbath, on Saturday. Soon then turns to the first day of the week because this gathering represents that we are now a people of the resurrected king. And so what do you see? You see this gathering together to showcase the worth and the majesty of the one who have made them a people. I mean, Peter will say later on, you were once not a people, but now you are a people. And just the grace that goes into that, of taking a people that once had no business being affiliated with a holy God, are now people that belong to him and showcase and display his glory. And throughout Acts, what do we see? The church is coming together and they're gathering. And then every other church or pastor that's addressed in the New Testament, there's just explicit or implicit activity of gathering. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the gathering, particularly coming to the table of the Lord's Supper, Paul writes this as this is where the many become one. We, come, we become one at the gathering when we partake of the supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Matthew 18, it's the gathered church that removes unrepentant professing Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, everything in the gathered assembly is to build one another up. And so you have this picture of gifts being used, and it's being used in a way that's bringing edification to all who are there. Colossians chapter 3, we're to teach and admonish one another as we sing to the Lord. The nearly 60 one another's in the New Testament, most of which necessitates real physical gathering. And so it can be said from cover to cover, the assembling church serves a crucial role in making God's kingdom visible, in showcasing the glories of Christ. And oh, let's not forget Revelation chapter 7. It's where all of this is going. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. And after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne. Not isolated, not social distanced standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, saying with a loud voice, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
When we gather with the people of God, that is unlike any other gathering that you and I attend week in and week out. This is why the Puritans used to say a controversial statement, not controversial then, but controversial today. They used to say the most important hour of the week, and depends on who was preaching, hours of the week, is when God's word goes forth to the saints that are gathered. And for a very Western individualized people, that begins to go, wait a minute, uh, like, most important time is when I wake up and have my quiet time. And we think individualized. Praise be to God, His grace meets us both there, but there is a way in which His grace falls on His people as they gather that can't be duplicated in any other setting. And so when we come together, we really do serve as a small picture of that great gathering of Revelation chapter 7. Every Sunday gathering points to that ultimate gathering. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God's good design for his people to gather together. Gathering together is essential to a church being a church. And for 2,000 years plus, this, uh, the church has been a gathering body. And, for, and God's people, for many centuries before that, were a gathering people. And so we should step cautiously if we want to look in the face of the overwhelming biblical pattern and say, yeah, you know what? I can gather when I feel like it. Yeah, you know what? I'm the, I'm the arbiter over whether or not gathering is really important. And so I just want to ask, is your practice in keeping with the biblical pattern? Are you committed to gathering with God's people? Praise be to God, I think there's a lot of grace to be displayed here in Covenant Life Church. Um, it is a sweet gift. I think I, I hear from many of you who would say, the sweetest part of my week is Sunday morning gathering with the saints. And I pray that that would continue. And I pray that it wouldn't continue merely because it's kind of mindless mechanics. But that we would see there is a biblical pattern and there are grand purposes for why God's people come together as the church. The Bible doesn't merely give us a pattern for gathering, but also clues us into the purposes for gathering. And that'd be the second scope. The purposes of gathering. And this is just where I feel like, oh man, there's so much, and perhaps you've already thought that about point one. Uh, I just feel like there's so much, and all I'm going to be able to do is really take the rock and just throw and introduce purposes. Uh, we could do sermon series on each of these. And so I just want to paint the overall picture to hopefully give us a flavor of what the Bible makes clear. So, a few purposes that we find throughout Scripture for why gather. Number one, to exalt God. We gather together to worship God in the ways that He has revealed Himself in the Bible. Central to the worship of the gathered church is hearing from God's Word. And so we show, we show God to be supreme whenever we gather together, conform our lives to his word, where we submit our wills under his word, where we give undivided attention as his word goes forth. And it's not merely to just show up and to hear a sermon, it's to show up and to hear from God through the right preaching of his word. And so there's a responsibility for you. Like in this activity right now, I'm not the only one that should be active. There should be an activity that you're engaging in to check everything that's said by the word of God. 
The word isn't merely written and passed around, it's preached to an assembled people. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 19 through 22 reminds us all that God has accomplished and says, now because of this, we can boldly approach this God who delights to be with his people. And so we gather together to exalt and to make much of God. And this is where I just want, I want to say a word. Perhaps you're a visitor, perhaps you're not a Christian. I just, I want you to know that we're talking about gathering and gathering, coming together once a week, however often, coming Gathering together does not make you a Christian. Attendance doesn't make you a Christian. The Bible says it's not attendance that makes you a Christian, it's repentance. And so we talked earlier about how God's good plan was to dwell with his people. And yet because of sin, people were banished. Because of the decisions that they made, they were banished. And the decision of Adam and Eve led to not just decisions that you and I are inclined to make, but it led to a nature that's actively at odds with God. And so we are born, as cute and cuddly as though we may be, we are born at odds with God, at war with Him, unwilling to submit to His good design, unwilling to dwell with Him, unwilling to allow Him to be God. And the Bible says that there's a just punishment whenever we are at war with a holy and eternal God. And it's an enduring, relentless punishment where we are experiencing his wrath, his holy hatred and violent opposition against sin. The Bible makes clear that for every sinner, there is a deserving punishment and reward for their sin. And that's that wrath. It's the wrath of God. It's his holy hatred, violent opposition to sin. You begin to go, well, how in the world is, why are we even here? Like why, why is there even, why are we singing? Why are we preaching? Why are we doing this? Just to remind ourselves that this is, this is what we have to look forward to and this is how bad it is. Were it not for grace, that would be the story. But God in great mercy, from the promise he made in Genesis 3.15, would bring about one who would do for you and me what we could never do for ourselves. Who would remove sin from our account. Wash us clean. Forgive us of our offenses against God. And then to credit, to give us a righteousness as though we were perfect and obeyed the law at every turn. You begin to think, how in the world do I get in on that? And the Bible says you do that not by church attendance. You do that by coming to the end of yourself and believing that apart from this work of Christ, this perfect life, this substitutionary death on the cross and the penalty that you and I deserve for sin, that's what he endured on the cross so that all who would turn from their sin and place their faith and their trust in him, they would know righteousness and acceptance, not unrighteousness and condemnation. And Jesus expired under the weight of God's wrath, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rises from the grave, showing that he is indeed God, can do only what God can do, and showing that the keys to our greatest enemy, the victory over sin and death, he defeats. And that can be ours 
if we will trust in him. And so if you're not a Christian, I just want you to hear your greatest problem is not what you do on Sunday mornings. Your greatest problem isn't a scheduling issue. Your greatest problem is how do you stand before a holy God with sin? And there's only one way to have your sin pardoned and forgiven, and that's to trust in Christ. And we would plead with you to do that today. Do that today so that you would know not mere mechanics for gathering, but the joy that's found when a people come together, having been redeemed, to then exalt and magnify this good God. So not only is it to exalt God, secondly, it's to equip the saints. Matthew 28 informs us that our mission in, is to make disciples. Part of that is to teach all that he's, uh, all that he's commanded. Ephesians 4 makes clear that pastors are to equip the saints for the works of ministry. I love how Lig Duncan says it. We equip the saints through preaching the Bible, singing the Bible, reading the Bible, praying the Bible, and then seeing the Bible. And he says we see the Bible as we rightly administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Spirit strengthens and builds His church. We gather in part to be stronger as we scatter. And so the gathering is important to the equipping work of what it is that God desires to do in making his people more like Christ. And the gathering today, it pulls in that future reality of heaven into our present practice. So we gather to exalt God. We gather to equip the saint. Third, we gather to encourage one another. The regular gathering together in corporate worship encourages one another. And this is what the author of Hebrews 10 really comes around to saying. In verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the question that you would, in, in reading this, is to say, okay, read verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How do we do that? In part, the answer is the next phrase, by gathering together. The, he the author of Hebrews is writing to convince us of the breathtaking glories of the gospel that are embodied and worked out when the church gathers together. I'm helped here to think how one pastor works through this. He says, I've always encouraged individuals joining the church not to do everything and try to do everything those first few months, but rather to devote the first several months to one ministry, and that's the ministry of attendance. I explained the best way you can know and serve and love us and that we can know and serve and love you is to simply be present when we gather. And he says, why do I call this a ministry of attendance and not just the discipline of attendance? Because of Hebrews 10. There's something about gathering together, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another. What's the alternative to, to neglecting? gathering. The opposite of neglecting to meet together is to be committed to meeting together. And so showing up to the gathering is a way in which we serve others. Gathering is how we encourage others. It's not all you do, but it's clearly the bottom line or the foundational first step. We gather then in order to mutually encourage, and we encourage in order to mutually endure. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. We're encouraging one another because we're gathering together with one another. 
all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we, what's the purpose of gathering? To exalt God, to equip the saint, to encourage one another, and then lastly, to evangelize the lost. Paul writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14 says, it should be this way, that when you gather to do these things for the building up of the church, that those that are not Christians in your midst would be convicted and be led to a place of responding. We gather to hold out the gospel to those that are not yet believers. And while this isn't a perfect reflection of that, I pray that covenant life is a foretaste of heaven that is to come. And so gather intentionally with the hopes of bringing about the good news to those that are far away. The third scope helpful for us to at least look at this morning is the promise of the gathering. So we've seen the pattern and the purposes. You see where this is going, the promise of the gathering. And so let's just be honest. If we're not careful, all of this can seem pretty duty-oriented. Uh, yeah, okay, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and we've got to gather together. I gotta, and I, it's a lot of I have to's. But what we heard read earlier in Matthew chapter 18 ought to, ought to pause us from thinking that this is merely duty, obligation, burden. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I there... I am there in their midst. Why did God create Genesis 1? To dwell with His people, to be with His people. And what do we see this promise? Whenever the church ecclesias, whenever they gather, there's this promise that God will be in their midst. Christ is there. And so here's... We either can look at gathering as, okay, i got to go do this, or we can look at gathering as, Christ promises to meet with me there. I want Christ. Like, treasuring Christ, that sounds great. That's a great slogan. That's a great... But if that's the longing of our hearts, then gathering will be important because Christ has promised that He will be with His church when they gather. And let's just be clear, what's, what's happening in Matthew chapter 18 are not a few Christian friends sitting together over coffee uh, talking about, uh, yes, that. That's not what's happening. That's a good thing. There's a place for that. But Matthew 18 is talking about what happens when the church comes together to exercise those keys so as to speak on behalf of heaven. Yeah, it's when churches come together. Unity of mind. And they begin to act in accord with what I have laid forth in my word. I am with them. I am there. He envisions the whole congregation gathered. His promise is to these believers who are gathered, exercising the keys, that he will be with them. I mean, that promise of his presence it's that same flesh-eroding, spirit-dependent, growing promise that Jesus makes before and after the Great Commission. Yeah, you're never going to be alone. And you're going in my authority. I'm with you. 
the last P this morning would be the prohibition against not gathering. We've already touched on it, Hebrews chapter 10. But if I could just summarize verses 24 and 25, the implication of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 seems to be clear. God has designed that there are good things that happen in your life and in the lives of others. And he's designed that when the church comes together, that those things do happen. And so neglecting to meet together actually leads to unhelpful and dangerous things in your life. If you don't believe me, look at Hebrews chapter 10. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling that straight from the Word of God. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'm just not convinced, right? I'm not convinced that I can't do church just as well from home that I can sitting in this room. Or maybe you're saying, is this some kind of post-COVID trying to sweet-talk us into coming back to be here more? I only want to encourage you to do what God's Word has called us to do. And if there can't be a convincing case made from Scripture, then don't do what I say. But let's ask this. Does God in His Word tell us to meet together, physically gather together as His church, in a way that cannot normally be accomplished if we were distanced from one another? He does. And so, brothers and sisters, and here's the thing. This isn't like guilt trip. Uh, you had a work trip. There's sickness. COVID precaution. I, I'm not trying to say if you've been gone for any reason that that's sinful. I think what I am trying to say is there is a drift in our culture, particularly today, that tends more and more to go, the decision to gather really is up to you and it's optional. And we just want to say, no, 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 God has spoken, so it's up to Him, and it's more of a necessity than we probably realize. It's essential to who we are together as the church. And so my time is up, but I do just want to call us to prioritize the gathering. Like God has given so many means of grace that would flow to us to help grow our affections and deepen our trust and fuel perseverance in the Christian faith and to encourage and, and instill uh, hope that would not move us in the midst of tumultuous days. And those means of grace are personal reading of the scripture and prayer and solitude and fasting. And none of those earn us more favor with God. They all are just reminders that any favor we have is, has already flowed to us through the work of Christ. But there is something uniquely different, this important means of grace in the life of every Christian that consistently gathers together with God's people, regularly gathering with the church as the church to sing and to confess and to pray and to laugh and to experience conviction and fresh grace, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to sit under the preaching of God's word. That is indispensable and it's irreplaceable. Praise God that, that we can listen to quality teaching throughout the week found online. Lean into that. But never let that be a substitute for coming together with God's people. We miss out on so much of what God intends for us when we're inconsistent in or unprepared for gathering together corporately. And so if I can just encourage us, if you just super practical, I'm just, literally I'm just going to hit these. Can I just encourage you to examine your heart before you gather? I mean, just think how your personal holiness may be affecting this time, 
where we're coming together as the people of God. Ask God to give you a sense of eager expectation and anticipation. Don't allow Sunday morning gathering together to just sort of degenerate into mindless activity. We're just in the car, we're going, we're not even... No, beg God to give you a soft and receptive heart. Ask God to show you who He wants you to love and serve. Ask Him to shock you out of apathy and bring new conviction and fresh application of His grace. May we not take Sunday for granted. And begin this on Saturday. Like, I really am shocked to hear some people think, whether or not I show up on Sunday is all determined by how Saturday night goes. And again, I get there are sickness and there th- Saturday nights can be... But as uh, some guy has said, uh, the decision to show up on Sunday morning is oftentimes made on Saturday night. And so consider like going to bed earlier. <laughs> consider just sort of cutting uh, the entertainment off by a fourth and spend time in prayer asking God to prepare you for in the morning. Review the passage that we're going to be preaching. And next week we will preach a passage. If you're a parent, get the kids' clothes out or let them sleep in them. (laughs) Third thing, arrive early. Right? If, If we don't want to fall into the ditch of this is an event or a building, then showing up 15 minutes late and leaving as soon as it's over, I think you're missing the gathering of the people. And so arrive early. Stay late. Look for opportunities to engage with people. And then actively participate. Ask God to give you a heart that will listen and receive and repent. Bring your Bible. Ask Him to pierce through any tiredness that you have. Take notes. Don't worry about what you're wearing as long as it's modest. Don't worry about whether you like the music. Don't worry about if others around you are critiquing your singing. Focus on who you're there for. Remind yourself that when God's word is preached rightly, that he speaks to you. You're not there to be entertained, but to actively participate. And then after the gathering, be on the lookout for those in which the Lord may have you cross paths with. Seek to be an encouragement to those around you. Is anyone new? Folks look lonely, isolated. Consider going out to lunch, inviting over others over to your home. Offer to pray for people on the spot. Whether you're extroverted, introverted, these are all good ways for you to experience blessing from the gathering of God's people. And I love that what makes us one as we gather isn't merely a shared leadership. It's not a mission statement. It really is what happens when we come together to this table that the Lord's Supper has been set upon. Not the table, but the the supper. You get what I'm saying. I mean, there's this picture in Revelation 19 of this feast that will take place in glory where the bridegroom will receive his bride. 
And that's going to be celebrated in large part by this feasting together. In my sanctified imagination, I just imagined a really long table and somehow still being able to talk to people on the other end. Just enjoying the fact that our faith has given way to sight. And as we look around, we will behold the majesty and the glories of Christ. But we will also look and see other brothers and sisters that are doing the same. And this morning, we have the opportunity to prepare our hearts even for that meal then by observing the Lord's Supper here. And today, there's even going to be a unique element of passing this, just even envisioning the familial celebration that will take place. What makes us one as we gather is the supper. Because at the table, we're called to to sit with him. And in sitting with him, we're sitting with those whom he has redeemed and restored, our brothers and sisters in the faith. And so expect God to strengthen your faith through even this. The table at Covenant Life is open to baptized believers, those who have found refuge in Christ by turning from sin and believing in him and have identified with him publicly. The place to publicly identify with Christ is not at the Lord's Supper. It's at baptism. Lord's Supper is then how you renew that ongoing identification with Christ. And so it's open to baptized believers who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the gospel, that the only way man can be reconciled to God is through the work of Christ, faith alone in that work alone. Because in identifying with Christ in baptism, you also identify with a people in a gospel. And it's open to those that are walking in repentance of sin and reconciliation with others. So if you are a baptized Christian, member in good standing of a church that preaches the true gospel, and you're willing to forsake your sin, you're willing to renew and restore relationships that are broken, the table is open for you. And if not, consider what would keep you from coming or from receiving the elements this morning. The Lord invites you to himself. And so I'm going to pray, and after I pray, the elements will be passed to you. We'll wait until everyone has received, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray.